0: Chapter Four of Recollections of Imperial Russia by Mariel Buchanan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Peter the Great. One glorious summer evening during the first year of the war, I remember we hired a little steam yacht and went out to Peterhof, having obtained permission to land at the harbor and go over the palaces. We started out late in the afternoon, round the islands past the point of Yelligan, the Yacht Club, and the shallow reeded marshes, and headed across the gulf toward Kronstadt, while behind us Petersburg lay shrouded in misty heat and dust, with the slim spire of St. Peter and Paul rising, a flame of gold, into the sky. The waters of the gulf were as smooth as a sheet of glass. Kronstadt, with the round dome of its cathedral, the grim brown walls of its fortifications seemed wrapped in impenetrable silence, and might almost have been an island of the dead, swimming in a haze of softest lilac on the turquoise-coloured sea. Slowly we steamed by under the silent shadow of the fortresses, and on across the gulf to the wooded shores of Iranian Baum, past the pink palace of the Duke Leuchtenberg, till at last we reached the landing stage of Peterhof, above the silver cascades of fountains rushing down the falling terraces to the sea rose the great palace with its painted walls of cream and red its three ranges of windows guttering in the low sunshine and the five golden domes of the chapel shimmering against the soft dim sky built by order of peter the great by the french architect leblonde in imitation of versailles and enlarged by elizabeth it is perhaps a little ostentatious almost too ponderous and formal with its sweeping terrace its vast staircases its great gaudy rooms its chinese lacquer its marble and gold it is the shining vista of the blue gulf of finland the rushing music of the waterfalls and the green dusk of the park where silver fountains whisper that make the charm of Peterhof and it is in the little palaces of the hermitage and of marley in the white cottage of mont with its terrace on the sea its blue-tiled kitchen and simple furniture that one finds the intimate memories of peter the great who hated and detested all formality and sumptuous grandeur so often has the story of peter the great been told and under so many different names of brute and genius murderer libertine or reformer has he been shown to posterity that in the end one does not clearly know which he is when he seems in his greatness to be them all terrible relentless and absolutely pitiless in his fury unmeasured in his excesses coarse in his revelry untiring in his work of regeneration inexhaustible in his energy almost childlike at times in his simple gaiety capable of very great devotion great anyhow in all that he did either good or evil when in sixteen seventy one the tsar alexis married the beautiful natalie Narishkin, ward of his favourite matbeuf russia was still an almost oriental empire eastern in the magnificence of its palaces its churches and its jewels but uncivilized and dreading the inroads of civilization shutting itself within the rose-red walls of the kremlin with its churches its priests its soldiers and its nobles keeping its women shut up in the Terem, drinking fighting praying in an ignorance that did not want to be enlightened the man who was to revolutionise his country was born in sixteen seventy two but there were insistent and recurrent rumours that natalie in reality bore a daughter and that a german surgeon replaced it by a boy and over and over again it was asserted that the kindly, weakly Tsar Alexis could never have been the father of the turbulent, vigorous giant who succeeded him. When he was three days old, the baby was measured according to the ancient custom, which decreed that the image of the patron saint of each prince born to the royal family should be painted on a piece of wood, cut to the exact size, and Peter was then found to be nineteen and a quarter inches long and five and a quarter inches broad later when he grew to his full size he measured seven feet exactly and was enormously broad and strong with muscles of iron during the first few years of his childhood he was surrounded by loving care and incredible luxury he had jewels and furs in profusion sheets of white silk embroidered with gold an army of dwarfs as slaves miniature ponies to draw his brightly painted carriage in sixteen seventy six however alexis died and the terrors and shocks inflicted on the child's receptive mind during the revolts and insurrections that followed hardened and coarsened his sunny-tempered nature darkening his days and filling his nights with terror leaving him also with a perpetual nervous twitch and subject to occasional fits of convulsion that were said by some to have been caused by some secret poison administered by his enemies on the death of alexis theodore his son by his first marriage with maria miloslavsky succeeded him the miloslavskys therefore came back into power Matveyev was banished and natalie was forced to fly with peter to the castle of pre theodore however only reigned a few years and when he died peter was brought back to moscow to be chosen as tsar in preference to theodore's younger brother the half-blind weakling ivan but a few days later the streletzii urged on by peter's masterful intriguing aunt the tsarevna sophia revolted and the little boy had to watch the carnage that ensued and was finally crowned joint tsar with his stepbrother ivan under the regency of sophia ambassadors to the court of moscow in those days spoke always of peter's good looks his quick grasp of a subject his intelligence and vivacity but the archbishop of novgorod when he was presented quailed before the direct almost fierce look of the child's eyes as if already he knew that the boy who looked at him so haughtily would one day overthrow the supreme power of the church in russia terrible and ruthless as peter was those years of his childhood can be held accountable for much when one thinks of the immorality the coarseness the duplicity with which he was surrounded the constant plots there were against his life the dangers that threatened him always on every side Perhaps the happiest days were those he spent at Preobojinsk, to which Sofia's intriguing jealousy once more exiled him the stories of his parades and games of soldiers of his work as a carpenter the legend of the old english ship stranded heaven knows how at eis and supposed to have given him that first passionate craving for the sea are well known and have a certain picturesqueness that one loves to associate with him when one cannot help turning in disgust from some of the other pursuits and pastimes of his youth as well as from the brutal acts of his later life when he was barely eighteen he was married to eudoksha Lefukin, a marriage that almost from the first was a tragic failure gentle dull intensely religious she hated all peter's modern ideas and reforms while he tired and fretted impatiently under the drag of her boring company and at last when ivan's death made him sole ruler of russia exiled her into a convent and forced her to take the veil poor sweet-faced Yudoksha. Colourless, insipid, and tiresome as Peter found her, she yet had her romance, her love-story, that only, however, intensified the tragedy of her unhappy life. In the exile of her convent, Major Glebov, who was said to be one of the handsomest men in Russia, took pity on her poverty and loneliness, and tried, by sending her furs and comforts of all sorts, to relieve the hardness and monotony of her life friendship and gratitude soon turned to love on the deposed tsarina's side and her starved nature expanded in an outburst of almost hysterical devotion the letters written at her dictation to glebov were imprudently kept by him and when twenty years later during the trial of alexis peter searching for proofs to still further implicate his unfortunate son Heard of Eudoxia's supposed intrigue, his passion-distorted mind seized on these letters and, with hideous savagery, tore the poor romance to shreds. Tortured with every form of cruelty, impaled on an icy March day, wrapped in furs so as to prolong his life, dragging on his suffering for more than twenty-four hours, Glebov stoically and heroically refused to utter one word that could in any way further implicate the woman who had loved him and baffled in his fury peter could only send eudoxia into a still grimmer seclusion in another convent near lake ladoga later still she was imprisoned in the fortress of schlisselburg till after the death of peter and his second wife catherine when the doors of her prison were opened and she was received in moscow by the son of alexis who had succeeded to the throne but her eyes that had shed so many tears could no longer bear the light of day and when the final sorrow of her grandson's death left the world empty of all joy she retired of her own accord into a convent so a pitiful pale wavering ghost she stands amongst those others who crowding near to peter stretch out accusing hands and in low whispering voices remind us of his crimes his inhumanity his homeric violence In their caftans of crimson, of emerald green, and deep cornflower blue, they follow him, an army of shadows. The ghosts of the Streletsiae guards, cut down in their hundreds, swept away and annihilated completely, because the clear, far-seeing mind of the great reformer saw in them an ever-present danger and menace to his plans of regeneration, a part of the old Russia that would always be his enemy. A creation of Ivan the Terrible, the strelitzii were practically of the same standing as the praetorian guard of rome or the musketeers of france they numbered altogether twenty regiments of eight hundred men each they had their own suburb in moscow they were kept and paid by the state in wartime, they were the rear-guard and vanguard of the army in peace they took the place of police in patrolling the streets were called up to put out fires or to settle disputes and were used as guards of honour on special occasions but their force and strength were in themselves a danger to the tsar they served and though they were his protection against foreign foes within his palace walls they might at any moment take possession hack him to pieces and set up a tsar of their own choosing always they were a power to be reckoned with a menace the tsar could never afford to neglect or ignore peter had never forgotten that day when they clambered below the windows of the kremlin demanding to see his half-brother ivan whom they believed murdered when at last to show them that it was not true his mother holding him by one hand and ivan by the other went out unto the top of the red staircase the little boy of ten looked down at all those threatening bearded faces at the bared arms that brandished swords and pikes and must have shrunk back covering his face with his hands when old prince Dolgurki, going to the head of the red staircase, tried to placate the furious rabble, and was seized by a soldier who had swung himself up, dragged down and brutally cut to pieces. During the three days of terror that followed, Peter must have shared his mother's anguish when one by one the Nerishkins and Matvief were torn from her, tortured, and put to death in the golden dimness of the terem, he must have wept with her when finally she was forced to surrender her favourite brother ivan Nerishkin, who having communicated went quietly out to his murderers holding a crucifix before him all this the young tsar remembered he knew too the unpopularity of the reforms he was introducing he knew that the streletzii would be the first to rise against him to murder him if need be place his aunt sophia on the throne and push russia back into the shadows of barbarism it was when he was on his first foreign tour to holland england and vienna that he heard of the approaching insurrection against him and hurried home determined to stamp out the ever-threatening danger once for all the torture-chambers of the palace of priobudzhensk The massed executions in the Red Square at Moscow show him once more the inhuman, implacable savage, a monster who knew no pity and no compassion, who himself even handled knout and axe because there were not enough men to do his bidding. But half-measures did not satisfy Peter. The Streletsii were an impediment in his path. As long as they existed, the new Russia he dreamt of would not be saved so he swept them away with a wholesale inexorable thoroughness that made his subjects cower in abject terror of his wrath what man is this who rules us the question was often repeated in scared whispers behind fast-locked doors is it antichrist who has wrested to himself the crown of holy russia but with inflexible perseverance the iron hand held the murmuring in check there were conspiracies to overthrow him plots against his life insurrections, disturbances of all kinds, that all, however, ended in failure. While from the shores of the White Sea to the Caspian, from the Neva to the Volga, and back again to the Baltic, Peter travelled with inflexible determination to civilise and reform his giant empire. The old style of beginning the new year in September was abolished. The doors of the Terum were flung open. The women of Russia, who had been treated as eastern slaves, were given their liberty the old barbarous laws of marriage were reformed social reunions were encouraged dancing was introduced into society the navy was born against all opposition petersburg was built and proclaimed the capital and all the time the war with charles twelve of sweden dragged on interminably and there was too a war with turkey which nearly ended in disaster when the russian army was surrounded by tartar hordes on the shores of the Preth. But at last, in 1721, peace was signed, and Peter was definitely given the title of Great Gosseter, Emperor of all the Russias, the title of Tsar, in spite of its resemblance to that of Caesar, being really very little more than a derivation from the old Tartar princes. His subjects might complain and murmur, the nobles might refuse to acknowledge his reforms, the Church might call him Antichrist and Blasphemer petersburg might be nearly swept away by floods the indomitable will of peter forged its way straight on through obstacles unpopularity and superhuman difficulties ruthlessly sweeping away everything that stood in his path that pitiless harshness did not even in its inexorable uncompromising severity spare the sun whose ghost stands foremost amongst the accusing shadowy throng of victims darkening the glory of the great emperor's reign the magnificence of peter's work for his country the story of his achievements which might have been written in gold on the pages of history will always be stained with blood and shame for whatever was the mystery surrounding the death of alexis nothing can wipe away the fact that his father was directly responsible for it erratic capricious weak and vacillating a dreamer with bursts of almost fanatical religiousness alexis the son of the unhappy eudoxia had been born in 1690, and ever since his childhood there had been an impassable gulf of misunderstanding, fear, dislike, and impatience between him and his iron-handed father. Alexis dreaded and disliked Peter's innovations. He loved the patriarchal palaces, the gorgeous churches, the narrow streets of Moscow, all the mode of life, the customs and manners of old Russia that were being gradually stamped out in vain his father tried to make a soldier of him tried to instil into him a little of his own superabundant energy the boy only failed lamentably his nerves and health weak and feeble his fear of his father forcing him into every sort of deceit and crookedness causing him even when at one moment peter ordered him to draw out some plans and problems of mechanics to wound himself in the right hand in order to escape an examination which he knew himself incapable of passing In 1711 he married the Princess Charlotte of Wolfenbüttel, and for a short time it almost seemed as if the union was to be a happy one. But Charlotte, with her languid grace and delicate charm, had not the strength of mind to keep Alexis to her or to help him mould his life on saner, stronger lines. More and more the old Russian party were gaining a hold on him. More and more he was slipping into dissolute self-indulgence, was constantly incapacitated by drink, and finally had the finnish servant-girl afrosina publicly installed as his mistress the secret conflict between him and his father seemed to reach a crisis when in seventeen fifteen his wife died in giving birth to a boy only a few days before a son was born to peter and his second wife catherine in the letter that tsar wrote to alexis at this time he enforced on him the necessity of either reforming or abdicating from the succession to the crown accusing him of being in his present state unfit to carry on the work that had been begun as i have not spared my own life nor those of my subjects peter added in his usual point-blank unvarnished style so i shall not spare yours better a deserving stranger than an unworthy son with abject humbleness alexa sent back a reply agreeing to abdicate But his father, perhaps disarmed by his ready acquiescence, perhaps relenting and willing to give him another chance, came to no definite decision, and left for a long tour abroad, leaving behind him another letter for his son, in which he gave him six months to make up his mind either to reform or become a monk. Punctually at the end of the time, however, he wrote to him again, curtly commanding him to join him at once and take up the duties of heir apparent or else to retire definitely into a monastery. Terrified at the idea of the gloom of monastic life, equally afraid of joining his father, Alexis listened to the bad advice of certain of his followers and committed the fatal error that was to lead to such appalling tragedy. Announcing to Menchikov that he was going to meet his father, he left Russia, but having crossed the frontier, he turned and, instead of attempting to join Peter, fled to Austria and arrived in vienna in a pitiable state of panic to beg the protection of his brother-in-law the emperor charles vi for the latter it was an uncomfortable predicament for he could not afford to make an enemy of peter and russia was at all times a dangerous neighbour the pitiable terror of alexis however at last induced him to give him shelter in the old castle of ehrenburg allowing him to keep Alfrosina, disguised as a page, and a few other trusted followers, later even transferring him to Naples, in order to remove him still further from his father's wrath. Peter's half-sister, Maria Alexevna, when she met Alexis on the Russian frontier and heard of his projected flight, had cried out in horror, "'Where do you think you can hide yourself?' she exclaimed. "'He will find you anywhere.' her words proved themselves quickly and terribly true for all too soon ramonziart and tolstoy the emissaries of his father tracked down the terrified prince forced themselves into his presence and with a fabric of lies and threats and promises that at one moment assured him of his father's forgiveness at another warned him that charles would no longer protect him that peter was on his way to naples and that afrosina would be taken from him undermined his feeble trembling resistance and finally induced him to accompany them so with tears in his eyes alexis left the blue bay of naples with its sunshine and freedom its brown-faced fishermen and moonlit nights and started back to the darkness and terror that awaited him his two galers smuggling him through vienna and not allowing him an interview with the emperor charles who might still have tried to save him slowly the last grim act of the tragedy unrolled itself in the kremlin at moscow before a solemn assembly alexis prostrate pitiful his shaking hands plucking at his quivering lips flung himself at the feet of his terrible father begging with tears and sobs to be forgiven in the cathedral of the assumption a furtive trembling figure surrounded by all the grandeur and pomp he made a public and open act of abdication swearing allegiance to catherine's baby son who was proclaimed heir to the throne a few days later he gave the names of those who had sympathised with him and encouraged him and in the pitiless and terrible inquisition that followed peter urged on it seemed by some monster of implacable fury showed himself not the reformer and civilizer of an uneducated people but the brutal barbarian who revelled in unspeakable cruelty once more the red square before the kremlin was stained with blood once more pikes with severed heads were erected around the lobnoi Mest, or place of the skull and yet neither terror nor torture nor executions could gain the definite proof of conspiracy he sought for and at last accompanied by alexis he returned to petersburg it seemed at first as if the wholesale persecutions were over alexis perhaps sustained himself with the hope that at last he would be allowed to live in peace and happiness but in april Afrosina, who had remained on in italy for her confinement arrived in petersburg and was promptly sent for and severely interrogated by the emperor A common, uneducated, self-seeking peasant, she was only too ready to win favor by repeating all Alexa's foolish, thoughtless words. He had spoken of a party being formed which would put him on the throne after Peter's death. He had said he would abolish the navy, give up Petersburg, do away with all reforms and innovations. It was still no conclusive proof of a conspiracy, but it was enough for Peter, who saw that as long as Alexis lived no formal act of abdication, not even the exile of a monastery would protect his crown from the intriguing grasp of the reactionary party who would always look on Alexis as the rightful heir. Once more the Russia of his dreams was in danger. To save her, this man, even though he was his son, must be destroyed on the fourteenth of june alexis was arrested and imprisoned in the fortress an assembly of priests and high dignitaries was convened and men who trembled before the emperor's frown sought through the scriptures to find authority giving him the power to punish his son by death All through the golden days of June, when the Neva was as blue as the sky above it, and the fires of sunset and sunrise burnt through the hot still nights, the huge granite-like figure of Peter stood over his trembling son and listened to the pitiable confessions that the cruel knout wrung from the twitching lips, confessions that even now gave no proof of having gone beyond, having wished the death of his father, in cowering fear and dislike having perhaps prayed for it thoughts and prayers alike never having materialized into any plan of action then at last on the twenty-sixth of june the official report was given out that having heard the sentence of death read out to him the tsarevich alexis had succumbed under a stroke of apoplexy only recovering sufficiently to beg his father's forgiveness before he died for eight days the body was exposed in the cathedral of the trinity near the fortress for eight days the priests prayed for the peace of the tsarevich's soul but the true manner of his death remained a mystery that has never yet been completely solved countless stories of course were told which all contradicted each other some stating that peter had actually killed his son with his own hands others holding catherine responsible saying that she had sent poison to alexis others again declaring that he had been beheaded by Peter's orders, and the head sewn on again, that his veins had been opened, that he had been suffocated in his sleep. And when Peter came to the cathedral of the Trinity, in the light of the nickering candles, the haze of incense, the shimmer of jewelled icons and priests' embroidered vestments, did he look down on the white, still face of the sun whose life he had made one long nightmare of fear without one tremor of sorrow or remorse? they say he wept at the funeral and yet the day after his son's death he had attended a te deum celebrating the anniversary of the battle of Poltava, and a few days later he was present at the launching of a new ship accompanied by all his ministers and yet with all his violence and his harshness he adored his second wife catherine and when their little son petrushka or chichenka as he was sometimes called died at four years old the emperor was almost inconsolable his letters to catherine are full of real affection and of confidences that are at times almost boyish in their candid spontaneous frankness they give glimpses of a home life that was simple and sincere they show the great reformer of russia lamenting the fact that in his absence from his beloved wife he has no one to look after his linen no one to see that his hair is combed no one to talk to in his loneliness without the friend of his heart one sees him the big restless untidy man for the coronation of catherine patiently submitting to her wish discarding his old green suit his thick woolen stockings and bullet-holed hat and laughing perhaps at his own foolishness putting on the gorgeous blue and silver court dress she had made for him with her own hands when he first saw her she was only just a livonian peasant girl an orphan who had been adopted by a clergyman married to a swedish soldier who, luckily for her, disappeared the day of the wedding, and finally had been protected first by General Cheremetyev, then by Menchikov. To Peter at that time all women were much alike, and the fact that she was Menchikov's mistress in no way affected him. She pleased him, and that was sufficient and perfectly excused his taking her away from the favourite. But Catherine was to be more than just a passing attraction in his life, and her power over him grew in a way that was almost amazing in the accesses of nervous prostration and intolerable headaches to which he was occasionally subject and which caused all his friends to fly from his fury she alone retained the ability to calm him nursing that savage throbbing head against her breast speaking to him softly and soothingly as a mother to a child though after his death she herself led a life of excess, she recognized the danger of his overindulgence, and, whenever it was possible, attempted to stop his intemperate drinking, even going to the door behind which he had shut himself to celebrate with a few boon companions the launching of a new ship. It is time to go home, little father, she cried, and obediently the ruler of Russia rose from the table and followed her above all things she was his companion his comrade and his friend she went with him on all his campaigns her courage was supreme and unrivalled a true soldier's wife she feared neither danger nor discomforts and would sleep in a rough tent and ride all day without showing signs of fatigue the stories of her giving up her diamonds of her bargaining with the turks and of her ready wit and tact which saved the russian army when it was surrounded on the banks of the pruth are well-known, though perhaps slightly exaggerated. But it was in memory of her assistance to him there that Peter instituted the Order of St. Catherine, and it was shortly after the campaign of the Proth that he married her publicly in the chapel adjoining Menchikov's palace. After the death of their son in 1719, Peter decided on a step that was almost unprecedented in the history of Russia and in seventeen twenty four catherine a livonian peasant girl a camp follower and a servant was crowned empress of russia the special diadem of pearls and diamonds that was made for her costing a million and a half roubles in the golden dusk of the old cathedral she knelt before the man who had raised her to such incredible heights and overcome with emotion wept as she bent to kiss his hand and yet it was she the woman to whom he had given his love and trust and the highest honour in the land who six months later struck a blow at his heart from which he was never to recover knowing peter as she must have done one wonders at her temerity in betraying him marvels at the foolishness that led her to believe that her intrigue with william mons a chamberlain of the court would remain undiscovered but even when her lover was arrested tried on a false charge of treason condemned and executed, her courage never faltered, nor could Peter, forcing her to drive with him past the scaffold where the body was still hanging, wring a word of protest or complaint from her. Perhaps it was a secret admiration of this fortitude of hers that induced him to spare her when, in his first insane, frenzied rage, he had contemplated having her publicly disgraced and executed. Morose and silent, fatally ill already and tortured by incessant pain, he held his hand, while a gloom that was ominous and sinister pervaded the court, and the grim northern winter settled slowly down over the new capital. In January, however, there was a patched-up reconciliation, and Catherine was pardoned by the man who loved her but could never forget, who, when she knelt to ask his forgiveness, raised her from her knees, but went his way unsmiling, a savage pain in his heart, A sullen despair on his ravaged face. A few weeks later, refusing to listen to the doctor's advice, he set out for Lodoga to supervise the works on the canal. And seeing a boat with some soldiers in it wrecked near the shore, plunged into the lake to their rescue, bringing them to land by almost superhuman strength. By many people, Catherine was accused of having hastened Peter's end with the aid of Menshikov but the violent fever brought on by his immersion in the icy water was enough to prove fatal to a man in the emperor's condition and returning to petersburg he died after a short illness on the twenty eighth of january leaving behind him no will or testament that bequeathed the mighty work of regeneration to a successor the last feeble words scrawled in his failing hand breaking off with give everything to leaving the sentence for unfinished and the name of his successor forever unknown immense incredible gigantic his shadow towers in the history of russia a turbulent force that swept good and evil before it that laughed at defeat and seemed to pass with callous indifference over tragedy raising russia out of the darkness of ignorance liberating women from the slavery of the Terem, building cities planting forests constructing canals fighting swedes and turks and persians learning shipbuilding in holland and in england visiting the king of france in paris the emperor of austria in vienna overcoming enemies abroad and at home subjugating the will of the people planting a seed of progress that in spite of disorders and confusion was to take root and flourish The long summer evenings of northern Russia seem always full of ghosts, spirits that steal down the twilight paths, dreams that gather round the sleeping trees, grey shadows of dead loves, and hope and laughter that the darkness of night-time covers, but that stretch out beckoning hands in the strange dim light that is neither dusk nor dawn. So that evening at Peterhof... When at last we boarded our little steamer and the silver murmur of the hidden fountains in the park came to us softly across the water, I seemed to see on the terrace of Montplacer a giant figure, standing with folded arms and fierce, wild, sombre eyes, looking out across the sea. Slowly, as we steamed away, the churches and houses he had dreamt of rose out of the hyacinth-coloured mist, and when we crept silently up the river, Past the great palaces along the quays, the fire of the long-dead sunset still gleamed on the golden spires and the great dome of the Isaac Cathedral, even as the deeds of the long-dead emperor still burn in fire and gold in the pages of history. End of chapter four.